Hey everybody, welcome back to Thinking Biblically About Things That Matter. My name is Steve Ron. I'm one of the pastors here at First Baptist Church in Warsaw, Indiana. And we are going to do the second part of our little two-part series on John Knox. So this is sort of a, uh, uh, it's sort of a celebration of, of Reformation Day. Um, October 31st is recognized throughout the Protestant churches. Reformation Day, and so this is sort of a, a fun way to remember the Reformation, and I plan to do this every year around this time at least, and maybe sprinkled in here and here and there throughout the year as well. Um, I, I love church history, and this time of year we're thinking about um, the, the Reformation and the great blessing that it was, and just the, the great way that God used men like John Knox. And so last week we took a look at John uh, Knox's life, um, and we we watched as his his life unfolded, and we got him all the way to when it was time for him to return to Scotland. Um, and so if you remember, uh, John Knox had, and, and if you haven't listened to that first part, I encourage you to do that before listening to this one, by the way. It's just make it a lot clearer, a lot more helpful. Um, but anyhow, if you remember, um, last week we saw John Knox had, he come into his own as a preacher, um, he had been converted to the to to um, the, the Christian faith. He had been he had been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, and he become uh, an ardent defender of Protestant belief. And he had become uh, um, a ferocious um, attacker of the the Catholic dogma and the Catholic heresy, and he called it idolatry. Um, and his preaching was, uh, it was ferocious. It was ferocious. And, and John Knox saw himself as an Old Testament prophet. I was, I was doing some research on his life this week, um, getting ready to, to wrap up this series. And Carl Truman um, pointed this out. It was just super helpful. Uh, John Knox saw himself as an Old Testament prophet. And, and he saw um, the, the nation of Scotland sort of through the lens um, of the Old Testament. And so you read the Old Testament and you see how if the king or the queen sins, the, the whole nation suffers. And so, so John Knox was just guided by that understanding, by that lens. Um, and so when he preaches the gospel in, in 16th century Scotland, he preaches it in such a way where he's he's calling people to to individual repentance for sure and to individual faith in Christ absolutely and to and to throw off um, the the Catholic idolatry um, he, to, to do that individually but he's also calling for it to happen corporately as well he he wants it to, he, he wants the nation to throw off Catholic idolatry and the Catholic religion. He wants the nation to turn Protestant. And so his preaching, um, his preaching fires people up individually, but it also calls for, um, it, it also calls for the, 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 the uprising against um, those in power who would try to suppress the gospel. Those in power who would try to um, promote 
what he calls Catholic idolatry. And so um, his, his preaching was, was fiery. And so when he came back to Scotland after 12 years away and, and he preached, Stephen Lawson says in, in his great little biography on John Knox, Stephen Lawson says, Knox passionately confronted the sins of apostate faith, religious deceit, and the idolatry of the mass. Knox described his sermon of the 11th of May as vehement against idolatry, and it certainly had the effect of rallying, rallying Protestant sympathizers to break the yoke of Roman tyranny. Shortly after the sermon had ended, a priest entered the, ce- the church to celebrate Mass. So a riot broke out, and the church altar images and ornaments were destroyed. Knox condemned the action of the rascal multitude as extreme, but no one, it seemed, could repress the escalating anger of the people. In the aftermath, the Charter House and the houses of the Black and Gray Friars, Catholic monasteries would suffer irreparable damages, uh, damage. And, and, and within weeks, monasteries all over the nation would likewise be ransacked. Mary of Guise was in, uh, enraged. She was the, 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 the queen regent, if you will remember staunchly Catholic, and she kind of has the power of the queen. Her daughter is the, is the actual queen, but she's not of age yet. And so Mary, queen of, or Mary of Guise is, is very Catholic and very determined to suppress the Protestants. And she is very much in league with the French. Um, and so the French have a powerful army. And so, um, and so Mary makes use of her allies' powerful army um, and when she, when when all of this destruction has happened to these Catholic churches, um, Mary of Guise was enraged by the destruction, and and to resist the uprising, she dispatches two thousand troops, most of whom were French, to suppress the rebels. Scottish noblemen, Lawson says, responded quickly by raising an even larger army, and were prepared to withstand the soldiers under Mary's command. To prevent a bloodbath, um, the the a, a truce was signed. However, the queen regent soon broke her agreement and sent her troops into, troops into Perth. This heavy-handed aggression only provoked more Scottish noblemen to align themselves with the Protestant cause. These leaders, known as the Lords of the Congregation, resolved to defeat um, Mary and establish the Reformation in Scotland. And so, and so things are happening here. A couple of things are happening. On one level, Knox is preaching, and he is keeping the Protestants fired up. Okay, and he he even goes and he preaches to the um, to the soldiers sometimes, and so he is he is keeping the Protestants fired up. He is calling for action, right? He's calling for individual repentance, individual belief, but he's also um, he he's also calling them to to kind of keep the faith against the um, the suppression against the military action of of the queen. And so while that's happening, um, there's this political maneuverings behind the scenes and, and, and involving France and England and Scotland, and, and eventually the Treaty of Edinburgh is signed on July 6th. And so this paves the way for the withdrawal of the French troops. And once the French troops are gone, um, Mary, uh, the, the Queen Regent, Mary of Guise, is, is she, she no longer has the power um, really to... Um, to continue to suppress Protestant belief, and by this time the um, the uh, what are they called? The Lords of the Congregation, the the Parliament members, the noblemen. Um, they are the vast majority of them are um, at least politically aligned 
um, with the Protestant side, right? So they define themselves, they, they, they identify as Protestant. Um, and, and some of this, historians will tell you, is because um, they want, to, um, they want to, to be in good with the English. Um, that, that's just kind of individually and corporately beneficial to them to, to be um, in league with the English. So some of these some of these noblemen they're 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 Protestant theologically, but some of them are Protestant. It's more it's more politically or financially or something like that. Um, but uh, either way, whatever all the different motivations are, and there's a bunch of them going on. Um, the the Protestants win the day after the Treaty of Edinburgh, and the the French are no longer involved. Um, and and the the um, the the parliament passes legislation, Lawson says, that abolished the Catholic religion in Scotland and established Protestantism as the religion of the state. Papal authority was abolished. Mass was made illegal. Anyone attending mass was to be punished by cons- con- confiscation of property and imprisonment for a first offense and face banishment and death for repeated breaches of the law. To further reinforce this new stance, Parliament commissioned Knox to form a committee of theologians who would who would draft a confessional statement. Um, they would draft a confessional statement that would become the theological standard of Scotland. Okay, so we have to understand the the, um, the the Parliament now has the power to to establish a new religion, a new a new church, new state church in Scotland. They they've and they've given Knox now this blank check, and he can write. He can, I mean, he gets to write the charter for this thing. So Knox appointed five men to serve with him, each having the name John. That serving under Knox's leadership, these devoted men, known as the Six Johns, wrote the Scots Confession in only four days. They were ready for this to happen. They had their they had their ducks in a row. They were ready um, for when they were when they would have the political um, power. Um, to reestablish the church the way they wanted to. They were ready. Four days, they cranked out the Scots Confession. The document was ratified by Parliament, and the legislation came into force. Um, And so, thus Scotland became a Protestant state. The preface to the Scots Confession states that the infallible word of God is the exclusive authority of the church. This assertion of sola scriptura, the formal principle of the Reformation, was a declaration that since scripture is the sole source and standard of all doctrine, all religious traditions must yield to biblical truth. This rule applied to the Scots Confession itself, which also must come under the scrutiny of scripture. Knox actually wrote into the Scots Confession itself, hey, and I'll paraphrase for you, if, if any of you, he says, to, 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 he says, if any of you find any article in this that is, is contrary to the word of God, um, send us a letter. Let us know. We want to hear from you. If, you. if you are reading through the Scots Confession, if you're reading through the statement of faith that's going to, that's going to dictate um, religious belief Throughout all of Scotland, if any of you find anything in here that is contrary to the Word of God, please let us know, and we will we will either send you a reply, which which we in which we will use Scripture um, to defend um, the article, or we will change the article um, if we find that you're correct. So so John Knox from the very beginning wanted even the the Scots Confession that he drafted himself with his five helpers there the six Johns he wanted even that um, 
even that Scott's confession to be subservient to the Word of God. And so he, he, put, it, he, he, he put an article in there saying, we will change this if, it, if it's proven to be unbiblical, which is awesome. It's great. Uh, but not everybody thought it was great. Not everybody thought it was great. Um, because now John Knox has to deal with Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, Mary of Geese dies in 1560, and her daughter um, takes over. She be- she becomes not only the queen, but like the functional queen as well. She starts to she 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 was in France. She moves back to Scotland. Um, the newly crowned queen of Scotland. Um, and so. Um, her her um, husband, Francis II, um, had recently died, um, and so this so she she was in France with him. He he has died, and now she is um, she has returned to Scotland. She is um, beautiful, intelligent, and she is forceful, and she is fiercely Catholic, and so. Uh, so Stephen Lawson says the battle for the hearts and minds of the Scottish people far from over. Um, and it becomes clear that, that some of the more powerful Protestant noblemen and parliamentary figures, um, probably were going to give Mary a pass, right? They were going to, um, not hold her accountable when she attended private mass, but Knox is going to hold her accountable. Um, he knew that the that the souls uh, of the nation um, were in the balance. He knew that the souls of the nation were in the balance. Um, so this is more than just a a um, uh, like a legality issue. <laughs> um, it's more of a, than a legality issue uh, because Mary is breaking the law. The Queen Mary is breaking the law when she attends private mass. Um, but again, John Knox sees himself as an Old Testament prophet. He sees Mary's private mass as a sin of idolatry that's going to lead the whole nation into judgment. And he saw the Old Testament kings as sinning on behalf of the people, which is, which is very much how the Old Testament portrays it. When David sins, the whole, the whole nation suffers. A plague breaks out. When Ahab and Jezebel sin, the whole nation suffers. There's a famine in the land. This is how Knox understands 16th century Scotland. Um, and so, as the queen goes, so goes the people. Um, and so, so, so the next week after after mass or after Knox finds out that that uh, Mary has celebrated a, a private mass, um, he publicly denounces her private mass from the pulpit, with nearly every nobleman in the country present. After that happens, the queen requests a private interview with him, where she took him to task. Um, Stephen Lawson says the queen questioned about many things, including um, his views regarding the obedience due to rulers. What we have to understand is that is that, um, is that John Knox was very different uh, than, than even the reformers of his day. Uh, pretty much everybody in Europe believed that that rulers ruled by divine right, that kings and queens, no matter how 
no matter how awful they were at their job, uh, they ruled by divine right. God put them there. And, and so you, 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 you obeyed them because God put them there, even if they were terrible at their job. Um, Knox didn't believe this. Knox, Knox didn't see it that way. Um, and so the queen questions him about this. And Knox says, Knox says, well, imagine if a father goes crazy and, and, starts, and starts beating or torturing or, or, or being violent and wicked towards his children, do the children not have a right to tie him up and to, to keep him restrained until he, until he gets his sense back or until someone can help? You know, just because he's the father doesn't mean that if he's, you know, if he's terrible, the, the children have the right to restrain him, don't they? Mary hears this and she retorts, well, then I perceive that my subjects shall obey you and not me. And Knox says, no, you, no. Knox says, I don't, I, I don't want them to obey me. And I don't care so much that they obey you. He says, he says, God forbid that I ever take upon me to command any to obey me, or yet to set subjects at liberty to do what pleases them. He goes, Knox is like, I don't, I don't want them to obey either one of us, and I don't want them to obey themselves. He says, my travail is that both princes and subjects obey God. Then they get into discussion about the true church and the monarch's duty toward it. Mary declared that she would defend her church at all costs, the Catholic church. To this, Lawson says, Knox boldly replied, Your will, madam, is no reason, neither doth your thought make that Roman harlot to be the true and immaculate spouse of Jesus Christ. Wonder not, madam, that I call Roman harlot, for that church is altogether polluted with all kind of spiritual fornication, as well in doctrine as in manners. The queen challenged him, Ye interpret the scriptures in one manner, and they interpret in another, Whom shall I believe? Who shall, I, who shall be judged? And so, you know, Knox has said, Rome is a harlot. Rome is spiritually adulterous. Rome has, the Roman Catholic Church has, has left the station. They are no longer, um, they are no longer operating under the word of God or, or in the will of God. They're, they're no longer true to God. They, they're no longer, um, they're no longer the true church. They've left the station. And, and, and she says, well, they say one thing and you say another. Uh, they interpret scripture one way, you interpret another. What, who shall I believe? Knox, Knox says, Madam, ye shall believe God, who, who plainly speaketh in his word. The word of God is plain in itself. She's frustrated with this reply, so Queen Mary expresses her wish that certain learned Catholic teachers were present to challenge his reasoning. She goes, I wish that, I wish that the, 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 the big-time Catholic debaters were here so that, so that they would put you in, their, in your place. Knox remained undeterred. Madam, would to God that the learnedest, pope, or the learnedest papist in Europe were present with your grace to sustain the argument. He goes, I wish they were all here. I wish the, I wish the best and the brightest were here. He says, because... Then you shall hear the vanity of their religion and how small ground it has within the word of God. 
He goes, I, I wish you would listen to a debate between me and, and, the, and the, the chief, the most learned papist in all of Europe. Because then you would see that, that there's not a lot of overlap between what they teach and the actual word of God. Their religion doesn't find a lot of ground in the word of God. That concluded the first encounter between Queen Mary and Knox. There are many such encounters like this. Uh, one of my favorites is when um, Mary, um, her, her uncle who was in France, um, he had 40 Protestants in France um, killed and uh, executed, um, essentially murdered. And, and, uh, um, and Queen Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, was celebrating this in Scotland. She publicly celebrated the, the execution of these Protestants in France. And when John Knox heard of her, of her gloating and celebrating, um, again, he preached in that next Sunday sermon, he preaches against her, denounces her, denounces her activity, denounces her behavior. She says, if you, you know, then later on she says to him, if you, if you have something against me, why don't you, if you have something against me, why don't you talk to me privately about it? And Knox says, Knox says, I am called, madam, to, to a public function within the church of God and am appointed by God to rebuke the sins and vices of all. I am not appointed to come to every man in particular to show him his offense, for that labor was infinite. If your grace please to frequent the public sermons, then doubt I not, but you shall fully understand both what I like and mislike as well as in your majesty as in all others. He goes, I'm not going to go around to everybody in the country and tell them um, privately what they do wrong. He goes, why don't you come to church? Then you'll find out what I think. Um, I love that. And maybe when you, you I don't know, um, you know, if you've heard much about Mary, Queen of Scots, but sometimes she's portrayed as like this porcelain doll, like this fragile um, young woman who, um, and, and Knox is just bullying her. That's the, how she's portrayed sometimes. That, can't, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, Mary, Queen of Scots was, she, she could handle herself. She could handle herself. Um, she was not one to be bullied. Um, she, um, historians almost universally agree and, and are like 97% sure um, that when, so, so Mary, Queen of Scots, her, um, her second husband, um, when she was married to her second husband, uh, she, she had carried on, you know, just uh, she, throughout her life, she carried on numerous affairs with different men. And, and, um, and at one time, her second husband had one of her lovers um, killed. And, uh, and Mary Queen of Scots knew that it was him that had had her lover killed. And so she had the building that he was in blown up. She, she literally exploded her husband. She, she, had, um, she had assassins take gunpowder and blow up the building he was in, killing him. Um, and, and so she was, not, she was not one to be trifled with. Um, she was not one to be trifled with. Um, which makes which makes Knox courage, Knox's courage before her all the more impressive. Stephen Lawson says throughout Knox's tempestuous life, this rugged Scot was never any bolder than when he stood before Mary, Queen of Scots. Whenever summoned to appear in her royal presence, 
Knox asserted that he spoke to her in God's presence. That's whose presence he was thinking of. No matter who he was talking to, he was living before the face of God. He never once backed down from her, nor did he ever hesitate to speak frankly. By these confrontations, Knox proved to be a man who was not a mere people pleaser. Mary once commented, I am more afraid of Knox's prayers than an army of 10,000 men. Knox was unwavering in his commitment to, to the word of God. Um, and, and that's whether he was preaching to rulers or to peasants. The last few years of his life are marked by conflicts and tribunals and at least one assassination attempt. Uh, but through it all, he remains a steadfast preacher of the gospel. Um, it is clear that Knox was a firebrand. He was outspoken, he was brash, but he was exactly what Scotland needed during these tumultuous times. Anybody less committed to preaching the word of God and letting the chips fall where they may would have been less than what was needed. The word of God was, the word of God clearly preached was what was needed, whether to rulers or peasants, and and John Knox fearlessly preached the word of God. So that's his life. Um, Again, I encourage you to check out Stephen Lawson's biography of him. Um, and, uh, and now just a couple of things I want to kind of learn from his life. What can we, what can we learn from his life? Um, one, Knox shows us that God uses flawed but faithful people. Knox shows us that God uses flawed but faithful people. Much, much good came out of John Knox's ministry. Um, but, I mean, if you were to ask him right now, he would say, yeah, I'd, I'd probably go back and do that differently. I'd do some of this stuff differently. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I took a wrong turn here or there. Um, I, I, people accuse him of being a misogynist. I don't, I, I have a hard time. You, you study his life out. It, that's a hard thing to, to defend. I don't think he was a misogynist. Um, he had great respect um, for the women in his life, um, the, the the women who loved the Word of God, um, who loved the gospel, who were passionate about the glory of Christ, um, John Knox had incredible respect for them. His first wife was um, she was brilliant. She asked him. I mean, she sharpened him as a theologian, but she also sharpened him as a man. Um, she would correct him when he was when 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 he was um, where she, in her opinion. Um, um, Making the making a making an error here or there, um, she would she would question him, she would correct him, um, and she just just brilliant theologically asked insightful questions, made made insightful comments, um, and and John Knox just deeply loved her and appreciated her and respected her. Um, there's another woman who was the wife of a London merchant that was just one of John Knox's sh- strongest, fiercest allies. Um, he would write letters to England, and and she would um, disperse them um, around the countryside. He, he was, um, she was his confidant, and um, she was um, again just another just sharp thinker. He had all kinds of respect um, and admiration and appreciation for her. Um, and so, just to say, John Knox was sort of anti-women. It's not there, there's there's not historical evidence for that. Um, he was. Um, just um, vehemently against the different Marys in his life. 
um, Bloody Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, Mary of Geese. He was, um, and and that's when he, I mean he wrote that book um, we talked about last week. He should have never wrote the, the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. Carl Truman called that a nutty piece of work. It was the it was the first of a three part series. He never wrote the last two, which is probably really good. John Calvin banned it from from um, Geneva. It, it, it was. It was a mistake. It was a hardcore mistake. It alienated him from Elizabeth, who 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 was queen after Bloody Mary, and she was a she was a she was a Protestant. She would have been a wonderful ally for the Protestant Reformation in all of Europe. And he cut herself he cut himself off from her because of this book. Um, it was just a foolish thing to do. Um, and, and again, I think we can look at him and and his understanding of himself as like an Old Testament prophet and be like, yeah, you you, you know his, his sort of sort of went off the rails there a little bit too. But again, um, you have to kind of imagine yourself for a second. I mean, if you, if the, if the only queens that you knew in your life had tried to execute you, um, and, and, you know, it's, it was easy for the other reformers to say, oh, we don't, you know, we're not going to rise up against our rulers because they didn't have to. Um, they, they, you know, the, the other reform, when, when John Knox said, hey, is there any, do we have any right to overthrow idolatrous government. Most of the other reformers said, no, we don't have a right to do that. But most of those other reformers also didn't have to make that decision because they were, they were relatively safe um, to continue to preach and to write and to teach and to promote the Reformation um, they, um, and, to, and to get the scripture in the hands of the common people. I mean, they were just, um, they, they could carry on um, without, like, threat of death, uh, many of them that were kind of telling John Knox, to, oh, I better not do that. Well, they weren't in his situation. And so, and we're not either. And so we, we look back and we say, yeah, John Knox was, um, he was flawed. He made some mistakes. Um, he didn't know all that we know and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but we also see he was incredibly faithful. He was courageous. He was faithful. Um, and, and we see this is who God uses flawed but faithful people, which is a great comfort to us because we are flawed. We are flawed, but by the grace of God, we can be faithful. Um, and, and sure, in 500 years, we're going to look back and we're like, yeah, um, I would have done that differently. You know, I don't know if we get the benefit of that and, and we'll benefit of that in, in heaven. We'll be able to do a debrief in heaven about our life and yeah, I would have done that differently. Maybe we will. And I'm sure if we do, we will... Um, we will all agree, yeah, uh, I messed up there. Yeah, I had no idea. That was a blind spot. Didn't know. I failed. Um, but we just take a look at John Knox's life, and we see God blesses and uses flawed but faithful people. What an encouragement to, to us. And then also, really quickly, the last couple of things we learned from him, Knox shows us commitment to God's word. Um, shows us commitment to God's word. You see that all over in his life faithfully proclaims God's word. He, he makes a lifetime, just a, a lifetime work out of studying scripture, learning what it means, knowing it inside and out, and preaching it everywhere he goes, faithfully exegeting, faithfully expositing the word of God. Um, and, and there's all kinds of ways we could illustrate this. My favorite, I think, is that in his when, when Knox is setting up church polity for the, for the Church of Scotland, after, after the Reformation is, is politically okayed, after they get the green light um, and they throw out Catholicism and they set up Protestantism, 
um, one of the first things John Knox wants to do, what he makes provision for, what he starts pushing for, is a school in every parish. He wants there to be a school that every, every kid can go to school. He wants every single kid, boy, girl, to be able to go to school so they can read, so they can read the scripture in their own language. He's committed to the, the word of God, and he's committed, finally, to Christ. He's committed to Christ. You read through his, his private letters, you read through his, his private works, um, he has a very, very honest understanding of his own sin. He knows that he is a sinner, and he knows that, that he needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. He needs Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ is his, as we would say, his only hope in life and death. Knox holds fast to that, and he holds up the glory of Christ above all else. And you read, you read through his life, and, and, and you just read it through that lens. John Knox is passionate about the glory of Christ. He is fiercely determined that Jesus Christ is going to be glorified. Um, and you read through his life, and you say, yeah, yeah, makes sense. It makes sense. Over and over you see, wow, he's going all in. He's going hardcore. He's going full steam. And you see what is motivating him, what is driving him, the, 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 the passion for the glory of Christ. So that's the life and legacy of John Knox. I hope it's a blessing to you. If you have any questions about it, about further resources on his life, um, or, or just questions about anything I've said, um, clarifications, anything like that, um, you can send me an email, pastorsteveron at gmail.com. Um, and we'll be back um, starting a series next week on um, the, what the Bible has to say about gender. Gender theory, transgenderism, um, and, and those kinds of issues. Um, these are issues that, that, that the, the Christian um, just has to be ready to, to think clearly about, think biblically about. So um, that's where we're going next week. Um, So until then, thanks for listening.